I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. So today we're talking non-program and design-related careers in tech, and we're going to throw in creating on the LinkedIn platform. There are so many individuals in the profession that reach out to me and I think others about alternative careers in tech, and they always tend to be on the UX or design side of things, and they ask me questions about what boot camps they need to go to to learn about coding. I always look forward to having individuals like Tyler on the show that can broaden the conversation. I think today is going to be a really fun conversation. I first met Tyler, I think it's almost been a year when he first started posting on LinkedIn provocative little posts about how architects should change the way they practice. I was immediately interested and reached out and... He's continued to grow his audience and expand the message that he's trying to communicate to the architects in our industry about change and how to elevate their businesses. And so today, we're really excited to welcome Tyler onto the show. Thank you so much, Janine and Evelyn. I am so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And I have a feeling we're going to dip into some provocative, interesting conversations today and hopefully help our audience think about all the many ways that they can disrupt practice. <laughs> yes, let's be provocateurs. <laughs> so I think Janine and I were a little bit ambiguous about what it is that you actually do. I mean, we didn't necessarily say it other than you post to LinkedIn. Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do during your day job and let's start there. Yeah. My name is Tyler Sumala, and I work in business development at Monograph. And then uh, on the side, I run Tyler Tactics, which is a weekly newsletter that helps architects win projects that they want for fees that they deserve. Yeah. So business development at a tech firm, and I think we all are big fans of Monograph here. Janine, maybe we should link in the show notes other Monograph individuals that we've had on the podcast as well, including most of the founders, I believe. But let's discuss your career path to Monograph, because you started out similar to the story that Janine and I have in practice. Yeah, right. We all do. We all kind of jump around a little bit. I think I've been I've been in the orbit of architecture for like the last decade or so working in internships, working in small and large firms, running my own little design studio for a couple of years. Basically got a little bit burned out from that process. When I had started my own studio at the time, I had done it just because I hadn't quite found a firm that I wanted to be at long term yet. So, you know, that's the normal thought process, right? I can't find it. So let me just make it. (laughs) Not as easy, not as easy, but that's okay. So I decided to look for alternative paths that would kind of still be around architecture that would still allow me to stay within architecture, but maybe not necessarily work directly like for a firm. So burnout, I think, is a huge conversation, but it looks different for everyone. So it would be great to understand kind of what your version of burnout looked for you when you were thinking about, I need to do something different. I think when I'm working at a firm, 
it's kind of straightforward, right? It's just like long hours and a little bit around like lack of control of your own time. That typically tends to lead to burnout for me. When I was running my own studio, it really just came from struggling to turn off like that, just that divide between working and not working was much harder to establish, I think, especially uh, for any other solopreneurs out there. Like I was just, I was just doing it by myself. And when you're doing it by yourself, as uh, Janine probably knows, and Evelyn, you might know as well, it's just like all that I could think about was everything that I had to do. And so it was, it's difficult to know like when you're supposed to stop at the end of the day, because you know that there's six other projects that you have to touch on at some point that need to be that need to be done. So I just got I was just really struggling with that essentially. Yeah, it's really hard because like even when you're not working, you're thinking about all the things you need to do. Exactly. There's a lot of learning yeah. curve to becoming an entrepreneur and it like really I think it it makes you very aware of all the things that you're not so great at suddenly and quickly. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. It puts them all into a different perspective. Like historically, I've been very good. I mean, I would say I've been very good with time management. It's not it's not something that typically I struggled with. I don't know that I struggled with like implementing it as much when I was running my own practice, but I didn't stop thinking about it. That was the problem. Like I could step away, you know, at five or six um, at the end of the day. But like I'd still be (laughs) it still was like stressing me out, even even if I wasn't because I wasn't working on it usually. So, yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. So you you went through that process and kind of explored that pathway and then you decided that you were ready to try something different. So you came across Monograph at that point? I actually I worked at a different startup for a few months in between that, keeping a close eye on Monograph and then kind of jumped on Monograph once I saw them starting to grow out their sales team a bit. I reached out to them and was able to get an interview and run through the whole process. And what attracted you into sales? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's just something like I was I was kind of doing some self-reflection to try to determine what aspects of the things I was doing did I enjoy most. And it's kind of funny, but like like an like any other architect, right? I obviously enjoyed designing more than doing like construction documents. I shouldn't say any other architect, but that was me in particular. I did not I did not enjoy, yeah, I did not enjoy doing construction documentation in any way, shape, or form. But I did enjoy the schematic design process. But what I enjoyed more than that was usually like meeting with my clients or prospective clients, um, trying to find new clients, developing new partnerships. Like I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, so that's where I kind of thought that pursuing a, like a career in sales somehow around architecture could actually be uh, beneficial and I, something that I might enjoy. So that's that's why I jumped into it. And I think as I mean, architects are kind of well positioned to be good at sales, in my opinion, I don't like whether or not you accept that architecture is a sales like career. It, it is already. <laughs> if you're if you're in it, you're you're already selling. But just in general, I mean, we're like brought up through kind of this whether or not we realize it, like we're brought up kind of in this culture of almost selling our ideas on a consistent basis. Right. We're pinning up our work. We're talking about it. We're trying to justify the decisions that we've made to our professors or to our jury. And then we go and do the same thing. Usually when we go work at a, at a firm, right, we're justifying the decisions that we're making on a consistent basis. So from that alone, I think I think you're already in a good position to pursue a sales career if that's attractive to you. And what was it that made you interested in Monograph as a company? I think, I mean, I still pretty strongly believe that like Monograph is probably the most 
exciting tech company like around the architecture industry at the moment. They just do amazing things and the culture there is pretty incredible, right? So I think what I, there was, there's obviously like what it is, like it's got a, it's got a really fun design culture and it has amazing people that work there, right? So that's, that's one attraction point. Another one is just the fact that it's kind of the complete opposite of what you experience, or at least what I experienced in the architecture industry um, as a culture, right? Because there's a four-day work week, there's a really good work-life balance, there's great benefits, the pay is is better, and so it's like it goes against everything that that was challenging about architecture, but it still allows you to come back and have a positive impact on the industry. So you know, all that around, like the the mission is pretty heavily weighted around positively impacting architects and the other people that contribute to the built environment. So I can get behind that mission 100%. So obviously you talked about architecture already being a part of the sales realm, but what does a, what does a day in the life of really look like if, if you are carrying the title of, of sales mm-hmm. kind of in your day to day? Yeah, there's there's typically two different types of sales positions at at least if you're going to pursue like a tech kind of a tech role. The first one is called a sales development representative, um, and the second one is called like an account executive. You can think of sales development representatives; those are typically like outbound people. Outbound meaning that they are usually doing like cold outreach, whether that's via email or like calling, to try to understand if specific people would be a good fit for the product um, and if they'd be interested in it. And then account executives are typically the people that meet with the people that express interest, whether that they come in through like one of those outbound calls or whether they come in, you know, from, from wanting to book a demo on your website or something like that, that basically like they're kind of like uh, your account manager, right? So they're, they're guiding you through the process of trying to figure out whether or not monograph or, or any other product, right. Is a right, is the right fit for you. Um, and for your firm and can help you. So I actually got to do both those roles. You typically start off in sales development representative, and then you move into account executive. So sales development is is kind of what it sounds like, right? It's a lot of pretty much emailing and calling for the majority of the day, trying to develop relationships with specific people. And then account executive is uh, just a ton of meetings. <laughs> That's what it is. It's a lot of meetings uh, on a daily basis. But what I really enjoyed about it was just an understanding and getting a really strong pulse of the industry and the challenges that firms are facing. Like I think that's the part about it that I really underestimated and that I came to love almost immediately. Whether whether it was sales development or account executive, um, both of those roles is just me speaking with firm leaders um, and firm owners about the challenges that they're facing in their practice. And when I do that a thousand times, I have a pretty good idea of what's going on um, in the industry, which is nice. Yeah, that that's kind of something that you hinted at in some of your posts, because you started talking about how you were speaking to all of these architects, and you were getting a sense of some of the pain points that are consistent. It doesn't matter what firm you're at, that seems universal across studios. Is that true? Is that kind of where your observation was? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, those conversations are primary, like they're focused around specific things, right? I'm not asking them like, what is your biggest challenge in general? Like they're focused around business challenges that they're having, but n- probably 95% of the the challenges that we talk about, uh, you know, are are common or are, are shared by someone else. And it's, it's rare to come across one that, you know, you haven't heard before um, or that's uncommon. Like most firms are kind of experiencing the same three to five challenges 
across the board. So, of course, the follow-up question is, what are those three to five challenges? <laughs> yeah, I think, so one one that's been really popular for, for probably the last year, hearing a lot, is people not being able to find the talent that they want to bring into their firm, right? So that's that's a really heavy one I hear from almost every single firm leader, right? They're struggling to hire the people that they want, which I think is a little bit of a two-sided battle. Um, I don't think that it's the talent isn't there. I think it's that they don't want to develop the talent, probably. So, right, so there's there's that. The other one is just like, it's so rare to come across any anyone in firm ownership or firm leadership that really feels like they have a stronghold on their business. Um, it's just really uncommon. And that's fair because we're not really taught how to do it. We just get thrown into it. And usually as you're moving up a firm, if you are working at like a medium or small, actually any size firm, um, if you're moving up in any way, you're not moving up necessarily because you're good at business. You're moving up because you're good at maybe managing people or because you're good at design or you're good at technical aspects. And then you all of a sudden find yourself in like an ownership or a partnership position meant to manage business aspects that you might ha- have <laughs> any interest in doing, right? Or, or maybe not even any background or skill to do it. So it's kind of like a funny, it's kind of a funny system that tends to develop like um, a lot of firms that struggle to have a hold of their finances, to be more proactive about how they're, especially how they're like staffing out their team. Um, that's a huge challenge, right? Everyone's everyone's kind of struggling with like how and how in the world do I kind of divide and assign hours across across the team? Um, that's a big challenge as well as just getting an understanding of like what is the cash flow? Like when when is money coming in? When is it going to be going out? How can I stabilize that so that it's a little bit more reliable? Okay, so just backing up a little bit, because you were talking about obviously pay and benefits and so many other things that make moving out of architecture and into an industry like tech and working for a company like Monograph so beneficial to to your own work-life experience. You through this process have become a dad. So what was what was that like for you and how has Monograph supported you through that? Yeah, well, I, I think obviously having having a four-day work week is really beneficial. I had my son when I started working at Monograph and then had my daughter after after I started working at Monograph and so got to take paternity leave during that period. Monograph has an amazing uh, paternity leave model at least at least relative to architecture firms, right? So I got I got um, 12 weeks of paid leave for paternity leave, which was amazing to be able to spend that much time with uh, with my family and with the kids and kind of divide and conquer. Moving from one to two is insane <laughs> for anyone that's done it. Yes, um, it's not double the work. It's like it's no, exponential. It is. Yeah, it's more like it's more like 10 times the work. It's kind of it surprised us. It surprised us. My daughter's now like six month old. Right. So we have um, our son is a little over two and, and she's six months and it's been it's been different to try to adjust to having, I think, two kids. And that's with like our kids are, you know, honestly, they're like remarkable. Like, I think they've been very generous to us as parents. I mean, it's still just exhausting to be a parent <laughs> no matter what. I would just like to, as a fellow parent, I would like to, who has two kids that are 22 months apart, which sounds kind of roughly oh, where same, you're operating same, at. Same, exactly. Yeah. So I was totally in the weeds until my youngest hit about two. And then that's where they really started playing with each other. And I was at kind of, we had a parent outing the other night and, 
you know, I was kind of reflecting on the fact that my husband and I can actually sleep in a little bit on weekends <laughs> because the kids just wake up and play with one another. So that's kind of where we are and, and oh, they're five exciting. and seven. So you'll get, you'll get there. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone always told me that I was in the weeds and I wanted to know when I will be out of the weeds. So I'm <laughs> saying around yes. two or three. I appreciate knowing that. Yeah. Experience With the exact same difference. That. Yeah. The nice thing is that they, they play well together right now, which is really nice. Like our oldest, he's been so, so understanding of like having a having a little sister, which has been amazing. And so he has not shown any ill will or jealousy towards her at any time, which has been amazing. Like it's made this process so much easier. He's been very adaptable and we're actually about to move again, like into a, a home, into a different home. So we're about to test that adaptability one more time, but so far so good. Yeah. So um, leading up to this conversation, you mentioned how kind of this transition was a bit of a thought to you to reflect on where you were at Monograph and even maybe create some change in terms of your overall trajectory there. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah. The the paternity leave was a really interesting moment to kind of reflect upon all those things you were just talking about. Like, what is my what's my role at Monograph? Um, what do I enjoy most about what I'm doing? What's most challenging about the things that I was working on? So I spent a lot of time thinking through all of those things and kind of came back like from paternity leave, less sure that like uh, that full-time sales at least was the right long-term path for me. It's mainly around like a few things like sales. It's kind of this, like you can, you can earn, uh, you know, a decent amount of money in sales, usually uncapped depending on where you're at which is nice. But then what also comes to that, right, is that your your pay is directly tied to your performance, which isn't unfair. That's how it should be. But it's also stressful. Myself, even as a, like I was performing well um, as a salesperson, hitting quota, like averaging averaging more than quota in, in that role, I uh, really enjoyed it. But it's still like, you know, you're restarting every month or every quarter, however long, like whenever that kind of quota repeats itself. And then you kind of have to restart the the party. So for me, I kind of like stability, at least on the finance side, right? So I did get to test out sales and and like there's so many parts about it that I loved, but with bringing in another child, having having two kids now and a wife to support um, and supporting supporting the family, I felt like it would be better to be in a position that would provide some more financial stability there, right? So just like more reliable, more reliable pay that wasn't focused so much on, um, how much I was selling, right? But then also allow me to use all these skills that I've developed just from being more active on LinkedIn and starting to do a lot more writing, basically a lot more like personal marketing, right? A lot more personal branding. Thoroughly enjoy doing that, which is why I continue to do it on the side. So it turned out to be a need on the monograph side as well, which turned out to be, which worked out well. So I was able to transition into a, into a marketing role. So you've gone through this process of of finding where you're at in your career and, and landed in this new role. What are you most excited about in taking this next step forward? I love learning. I think that's why, you know, that's something that I love so much about architecture too, is that you can just, you can never know enough. No matter where, like it's, it's this funny thing where like we all go through um, and get one or two degrees and then we work and it's still like we, we arrive at our, at our job and then realize we don't know anything again. And then we kind of have to restart. There's that anxiety where you have to 
you feel like you have to learn how to do things differently now than you did in school. So I kind of, I, I love that process of knowing that there's always so much more to learn and learning how to do things differently. So I feel like I'm getting a really well-rounded experience in getting some really valuable skills just from the aspect of, I mean, obviously I know how to design. I've now learned how to sell. Uh, and now I'm learning how to do more like professional marketing and more copywriting and more website design and more social media. So uh, I'm basically, you know, <laughs> I just, I feel like I'm getting like the full, the full kind of surround of um, a business experience, which I really appreciate. So you're getting that talent development support that is often lacking in the architecture firm space. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Sorry, I might have like connected some invisible dots there, but yeah, we're going to talk more about that in a bit. But I do want to ask if there's anything that you do miss from being in the architecture space. I think it's just the people, you know, I mean, architects are so wildly talented, every single one, and they're so good at, at different things. And so Again, like being just, you know, I call myself like a serial learner. So being like a serial learner, I do love that environment because there's always something, there's always something to be learned from the person next to you. There's like the the other architect is always going to know how to do at least one thing better than what you do, right? And there's always like process to be improved in some way and, and a way to like optimize and continue learning and growing. So I think that's what I miss most about it is just the people. But you are getting to talk to a lot of people, or you at least you were in your sales role, right? In in your outreach, and then as probably account executive, how does that shift then with your move to to marketing? And does this continue to meet the need of kind of that desire to continue to work with people in, yeah. in the industry? Yeah, I think it's one of these things where I now get to take, I don't know the final count now, but it's like over, it's it's healthily over a thousand conversations with architects and architecture leaders. So I get to take all of that that I've learned and make sure that that um, monograph is speaking well and presenting itself well to those to those people, like based on those conversations and the challenges and pain points that I know that they have. So it's different, but it's not like I'm not talking to people. I'm just not having as many conversations with architecture leaders. But I still, you know, even in this role, I have to communicate with like our existing customers and understand where their values lie and also continue to listen to other conversations and have conversations with our sales team and with our customer experience team and with our product team and to understand what challenges they're facing and what things they're hearing and how to best, basically how to best serve our customers is essentially what it is. So as a part of that, your that transition, you kind of alluded to writing and doing more on LinkedIn. So I want to kind of dive into that and this and Tyler Tactics. So why don't you talk a little bit about why at the beginning of the year or when you went on paternity leave, did you decide to do this in the first place? Yeah. And and lessons learned from from doing that. Yeah. I've been posting regularly on LinkedIn since January of last year, right? So since January of 22. I originally just started by by just kind of posting my own observations of the industry as well as challenges that I had faced. Relatively quickly realized that I was definitely not alone in those thoughts or challenges. Uh, like Janine said, right, uh, I had a lot of people that reached out to me initially, which was really encouraging. 
Um, and I've continued to do that. And I think now it's like helped a lot of other people also realize like they're not alone, right? This is a shared interest. This is a shared passion among people. This is something that the industry like recognizes needs to change, which is really good. So yeah, when I went on paternity leave, I don't know why I decided to do it like so, so soon. I think my daughter was like two or three weeks old. I don't know. I don't know what goes through your mind. You know, your new, your child number two comes around, you have paternity leave. There's like no extra time. And I just decided why not start a newsletter. (laughs) But the the real impetus was it was just because I knew that there was a need for it. Just from posting more often about things that I had learned on the business development side, like in sales, it didn't take me it didn't take me too long to be in a formal sales role to realize how terrible I was at it like before, you know, when I was running my own practice, that I didn't have any systems in place, that I didn't know how to guide a conversation or how to ask the right questions. So that became pretty clear to me that I didn't know what I was doing. So then I started talking to some of my other friends, right? Because architects are only friends with other architects. So I was talking to my other um, architecture friends, asking them, you know, especially as like they were all kind of also starting to like start their own practices and do their own, at least, you know, do side projects, things like that, asking them what their experience with that was, realizing that they also had the same experience, like they didn't really know what they were doing. So that was, that was really the impetus to just like, I know that there's a need for it in the industry to talk more about like these business development aspects, to talk more about how you can guide conversations and how you can have better conversations and ask better questions so that you can get better clients and specifically how th- so that you can increase your own value just by understanding what the client values more. Do you remember any of your early posts? I'm just wondering like off the top of your mind, if like you could give our listeners an example of something that you might've posted early on. Usually just things around like uh, architects, work long hours and they have low pay, right? They experience burnout often, yet they're incredibly talented and extremely valuable and, and yeah, just skilled in so many different ways. So it's just, it's like a weird, it's a weird situation that we find ourselves in, in the industry where the architect seems so undervalued and the profession seems so undervalued just given the amount of skill like i just i truly do believe that architects especially like just in their training like there's almost nothing that they can't probably jump into and offer value in in some way like we're just taught to creatively solve problems all the time which is such a valuable skill so the fact that we can do that for other industries and other things so easily but then we struggle to do it within our own industry is is it's it's odd. It is odd. It's odd that we find ourselves in this position. Yeah. And people that's a really good point. You know, I I've definitely seen architects they will fight for their clients. They will give them go above and beyond and then when they like simultaneously neglect their own needs. And you know what was amazing? I feel like early on you came out swinging with some of these messages that really caught the attention um, of many people on LinkedIn in this industry. And I know you've refined your message over time. And and we're going to talk about Tyler Tactics, which we recommend everybody to sign up for. But early on in this process, when you started putting that message out there, was there ever any hesitation when you got started? Like, that you were dipping into an area that might <laughs> trigger some people? 
Yeah, I mean, it did. <laughs> it did, and it still does. It did, and it still does. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of hesitation, but I think this is one of those things that come with one. I know that I know that Monograph like uh, is supportive of changes in the industry, right? Of of like wanting to decrease burnout, right, and wanting to increase pay and wanting to improve business practices. The second one was that I know that I'm not working directly for a firm. Right, I'm not working for a firm, so I don't, I don't have to worry about an architecture firm getting upset with me because I'm saying that they're not paying their employees enough. So it's like this. It was kind of this like healthy spot to find myself in, where I'm still kind of tangential to the industry and still working directly with architects, but don't have to worry about blowback from being like directly in the industry. So yeah, there was definitely some hesitation initially. I remember, but after you know, after a few posts and realizing like this is. Like this is obviously, this obviously means something, uh, and there's definitely something here. That's kind of like what kept it going, right? I mean, it's the it's the people, it's it's the people that kept it going. That's what that was the most encouraging part to see these responses to understand, like, okay, yeah, I wasn't alone in my experience. They're not alone in their experience, and now other people are realizing that, like, yeah, this is a shared this is a shared observation, and this is a shared challenge that we should all get behind in some way. I remember. When I worked in practice, raising some of these concerns at various points and getting some really harsh feedback for raising observations, <laughs> one job in particular, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> and it made me nervous when I went out on my own and had this idea mm. of wanting to build this business around similar hopes and dreams of changing the industry. And then also Evelyn and I, as we developed the podcast, same thing. I would go through it with her. I'd be like, oh my gosh, can we say this? Are we going to get criticized? And you know, what blowback are we going to experience? But honestly, you're right. Like Being outside of being employed by a firm, I feel like I have – more people listening to me than I did when I was inside a firm. It's yeah. like a strange dynamic that actually gives you more ability and space to say what's on your mind. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the thing that really makes a difference for me is when I have women who come up to me and are so appreciative that we've said something that they've thought, but they never felt like they could say and that's happened behind closed doors so many times that I know mm. that it matters that I come out swinging and say things sometimes. Yeah, that's awesome. I I do love getting messages from people, <laughs> like saying thank you for just thank you for saying anything about this. Like this is like you know this is something that I've I've been in the industry. Like I've gotten messages just from people. Like I've been I've been working in the industry for fifteen or twenty years, and I like average sixty hours a week, and I've been doing it for so long, and. I'm, exhausted and it's sad it's a sad it's a sad thing that just shouldn't exist but yeah it really does come around i wouldn't still be doing it if it wasn't for like you know the community like the architecture community in general and what they and then what they push for i mean it's a passionate it's a passionate community that's passionate about bringing positive change i think and at its core, I think that's why I stay so – well, I mean, it is. You talked about the people in architecture, and that's kind of why you've still stayed adjacent to the industry. And I and I feel like that's what continues to drive me, too, to stay adjacent to the industry, because there are these very passionate people 
we know that they can run their businesses better than they are. Yeah. So how do we, how do they we, know that. How do we get, <laughs> they, they know that. Yeah. So how do we help them make that connection and do things, do things differently? So in addition to just getting the feedback that you have been getting, one, why don't you tell us a little bit about, because we keep saying Tyler Tactics, but why don't we actually, you tell us a little bit about, about the newsletter itself and, and Tyler Tactics and, and some of the consulting endeavors that have kind of rolled off of that. Be a little bit more specific about the value that you are, are actually bringing to the conversation. Yeah, sure. So Tyler Tactics currently is just a weekly newsletter. I put it out every Sunday morning. Um, I've been doing it since September, so it's now been about six months, and I'm coming up on I'm coming up on 1,200 subscribers, which is really exciting. I call them ambitious architects. I'm coming up on 1,200 ambitious architects that are following along every week. Really thankful for all of them. They're all very engaged. Um, typical things that I'll talk about. I, I spend a lot of time talking about how to have better conversations and specifically how to ask better questions. That's probably been like. I don't know, 60 to 70% of those like weekly tactics that I do are usually focused around like how to say something in a different way or how to ask a question differently and how to dive a little bit deeper into the needs of your customer or the needs of your client, I should say. So things like that, I talk about like how to manage your pipeline, the one that's going out this weekend, which won't be out or which will definitely be out by the time this, this airs in any capacity is talking about, you know, how to say no to your client without actually saying the word no, uh, different ways that you can go about like having those conversations. So really what it came out of was, you know, being in that sales role and just understanding the impact of the way that you say things, the way that things are framed, the different questions you can ask and having, having so many different kind of like approaches to those conversations really gave me just a just a wild like understanding of the impact that those things have like they can really change a conversation and they can really help you understand what your client values the most and what it is that they're actually like that they're actually trying to solve because especially when we're talking about architecture and when we're talking about architects and their clients clients don't just like wake up one day and decide that they want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars right on a new project there's something there there's like a there's a frustration there's a challenge there's a pain that's led to that decision and usually we don't actually you know you can't discover it by asking those quantitative questions around like how many units do you want what's the square footage like you're not you're not going to find it so it's much better to focus on like actually forming meaningful connections and meaningful relationships getting that conversation to a deeper point so that you can actually understand the value, the challenge, the pain, and one, establish if you are the right fit for that. And two, if you are, you know, position yourself as the vehicle to get them from where they are to where they want to be. I wanted to ask you about your process, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about how you've elevated your craft in this space. Yeah, it's been through a big focus on writing. Um, I've always enjoyed writing I didn't know about copywriting. I didn't know what copywriting was until like a year and a half ago, right? Uh, and for those of you that don't know, copywriting is essentially just like, how would you even describe it? I don't know if I can say it shortly, but it's, it's you know, writing that encourages your reader to keep on reading, 
is how I would describe it, right? It's kind of like it's it's writing for marketing, it's writing for sales, it's writing for attention. It's kind of like all of those things combined. Um, it's writing to get your message read. <laughs> that's that's what copywriting is. And so I dove into that a lot, just trying to find, you know, almost following attention, right? You can you can look on, you know, people write differently on Twitter than they do on LinkedIn, than they do in newsletters, than they do in articles, right? There's kind of different forms of writing that people find themselves attracted to. Um, so I was following attention in the sense that I was looking at other people that were getting attention, understanding how they were writing, how they were formatting things, right? And how they were framing things. And then kind of like usually taking that back and framing it some way, like in an architectural capacity, right? Because there's just not that many, you know, we're, we're part of a small, we're part of a small community here of, of like creators in architecture that, that write about these challenges on a consistent basis. So I've always found value from looking outside of the industry and then coming in. And so from doing that, like there's, you know, obviously learning different formats, different words and things that you can use to get a little bit more attention on your post or to keep people reading. Uh, what's also coming out of that is like different frameworks around doing writing that kind of hold people's attention. So one that I use almost every single week in my newsletter um, for anyone for anyone that's in my newsletter or follows, it's called uh, PAS. It's, a, it's called like PASS, which is a form of copywriting where you start off by explaining what the problem is. Uh, you agitate that problem right, by like giving specific examples or talking about like a specific experience that you've had or that someone has had. Um, and then you present the solution to that. I've actually broken down, I have like a, you know, a notion document where I break down all the topics that I want to talk about in my newsletter. Um, and I break it down into those things. I actually add another S uh, for steps, like just to, to actually like do the solution, because that's a big thing for me in newsletters and something that frustrate that's frustrated me and that I've tried to fix in in Tyler Tactics is that there's a lot of newsletters that just like present the problem and present the solution, but then don't actually tell you how to do it. Like they don't give you the actionable steps. And so it's really important to me to make sure that whenever I do a newsletter, um, one, I keep it short. It's always under a five minute read, but two, uh, that I actually provide actionable steps that if you were to go out uh, and have a conversation with a client on Monday, um, you'd have, you'd know how to do it. You don't know how to do it differently. What's interesting to me is like you took this very analytical approach, even I think to learning how to post better on LinkedIn, which I feel like most people wouldn't even think about researching like how I can make more meaningful <laughs> posts on LinkedIn and, and where to follow that. So I feel like everything is an educational opportunity and you know, I'm scrolling through LinkedIn right now and all I see is architects posting pretty pictures of their project, <laughs> like their final products. And I was like, yeah. oh, there's so much more that you can talk about. Yeah, yeah. We tend to post things that will attract other architects and not necessarily attract other clients. That's that's the true downfall. It's a big it's like, thing we do. It's a big thing we do. <laughs> it's a big thing that websites do, right? Like, is your website actually yeah. for to help you attract other clients or is it to help you impress other architects? Right. And then speaking <laughs> even of your pipeline, yeah. like, is it talking at all about your firm culture to attract the right talent? Exactly. So, exactly. I, I did want to come back to that because we kind of teased that up in the beginning of the conversation on talent development. So mm. can you share some Tyler tactics with our audience about talent development? Around talent development? 
I don't know if I've had a Tyler tactic around talent development. I've had, a, I've definitely written a couple of posts about it. Like my, my personal perspective on this is that talent development requires a few things. One of them being transparency. Like you, it's the, it's such a free, it's literally a free way to develop talent by being transparent about finances at your firm, about processes, about how decisions are made at your firm. If you do that, and if you're transparent about it, then just via osmosis, the people that are actually, that, that actually like care about that, uh, the talent that actually cares about that is going to understand and learn how those decisions are made or how these processes work. And they're probably even going to start thinking about different ways of improving those processes and things like that. So to me, that's like, I understand it as like being a difficult, like mental model to get over, right? Like, should I share this information? Should people see that? Like, I understand, I understand the hesitancy there, but I think the benefits far outweigh that just because, you know, there's other options too, right? I mean, you should have, you can have like a mentorship model. You can have different trainings that you're doing, doing in place. And I think that you should do those, but those all require much more work than just being transparent. Like if you're just transparent, that's free, it's easy, and it almost requires like no extra work. <laughs> it almost requires no extra work and people will just begin to develop from that. What's interesting to me though is the disconnect between how trans like how communicative and how transparent leaders believe they are being mm. versus what kind of the middle managers and the individual contributors, the people working, doing the work, like what they actually need from them. Yeah. So I think that's, that becomes like your, your third S in terms of like very specifically, <laughs> <laughs> like what are the things that they can be more transparent about that, that really support growth, growth and development? Because it's not just enough to say, you know, we hit our goal by 100% or we exceeded right. our profit goal by 150%. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I think that uh, if we're talking specifically about architecture and architecture firms, I think that project managers need to know the actual dollar amount budget that they have to work with. I don't know how you manage a project effectively without knowing that so that you can kind of move that money around as needed and make more informed decisions, right? And I think, you know, honestly, I, I do think that there would be some value, even if like designers were aware of that, if they understood like that their time was directly, you know, you, you just don't think about that. You don't think about that when you're in a design role that like your money is somehow it like has a greater meaning. Like you don't, you're just not usually told like the, the impacts of spending an extra hour on something, right. When you might not need to. Like we're not we're not driven into this idea of kind of like working efficiently no. necessarily. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we leave hours on the table all of the time, especially as a, as a designer, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to improve the design, but you don't realize that you're probably spending like three or four more hours on it than you actually need to. And then all those changes that you need to you make that you have to re-coordinate with like any consultants, depending yeah. on where you are in the process. Yeah. So what took you five minutes might take a lot longer. Yeah, it has like it has effects down the line. That's right, right. So you can make one change to the design because you want to improve it and then the consultants all have to make changes to their drawings as well and then the client has to be re like reinformed in some way that there's a change happening and then you know, so it it happens down the line but we don't we generally don't like think about those things. We're we're not we're, at least I wasn't, right? You know, I'm not like I wasn't taught at the beginning like in a designer role like oh my gosh, if I make this one change, then there's like this chain reaction that happens after that. 
Yeah. And architects are notoriously not loving filling out timesheets. But <laughs> I think Monograph has done a really great job educating the industry around why that's important. And you guys have actually I, – I told Robert this when I saw him in Austin, but I just feel like you guys have developed such great content around educating the market on business, just really basic fundamental ideas, why a timesheet matters, why is it important to track your time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, that was another attraction to monograph, right? Is that they, they are, they care enough, not just like, it's not just about getting more people into monograph because we certainly like, you know, the market, the market of firms is huge and we only work with a, you know, specific sector of, of architects right now. However, a lot of the content is really valuable to almost any architect. Right. And just talking about things that not even like, not even challenges necessarily that, that monograph solves, right different things that you can do to improve your business. But it's also like, I can tell you right now that it's like an endless discovery process within monograph as well. Like we're having, we just started doing these things that we're calling office hours, which are not recorded sessions uh, where like 50 to 100 architects typically jump into like a zoom call. And we literally talk about a specific topic because we're trying to understand too, like what, what actually are these best practices? Like what are people actually doing that are doing it well so that we can, you know, share and collaborate with that information better to like, you know, to raise up the entire industry. Yeah. But what I love about monograph is not only do you talk, uh, and this is not a sponsored, uh, <laughs> a sponsored episode by any means, we just love the product and we love the people. And I think we, and we love the, the culture and, but they've built in all the tools into the platform. So not only do they talk about transparency, but then they enable you to show the financials down to the person doing the bathroom details, should mm-hmm. you want to, mm-hmm. so that they can so that you can begin to have those critical conversations about what changing details does to the rest of the project. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, different permission levels so that people can see the information that you want them to see. So now that we've like kind of looped back to monograph, I guess, you know, my question for you is obviously they have the four day work week. Usually they encourage this type of work. So, and you've talked about how supportive they've been just generally professional development and movement and career growth for Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. by enabling you to do this. What has been the benefits to, to monograph from yeah. From you going through this process. I mean, I think it's a it's mutually beneficial, right? So we didn't even talk about this, but the whole reason, one of the reasons that I felt empowered to post on LinkedIn to begin with was because they had paid for a course for me to take that was like around LinkedIn content creation, essentially, right? So I took that course and like immediately began implementing it, right? So that was that was the thing that empowered me to to begin posting on LinkedIn. Right. Obviously, as I grow my audience, it's like it's heavily it's heavily architecture focused and even start Tyler tactics where, you know, people jump onto a newsletter and know that I work at Monograph. People jump onto my profile. The 15,000 followers jump onto my profile and know that I work at Monograph. Right. It's it's a mutually beneficial relationship. The growth of my own personal brand obviously reflects hopefully positively (laughs) on on Monograph. Right. And just in terms of being a voice and hopefully some kind of like um, thought leader in the industry, right? That Monograph can look at and say, yeah, he, he works here as well, among with 
like so many, so many other talented and passionate people here that are really focused on, uh, you know, this mission of improving um, the way that the people that control our built environment run their business. Yeah. And this is a small group. I think we we just have, have architect creators and I've taken inspiration from you, Tyler. And this year in 2023, I've kind of made an effort to begin to be post more regularly to to LinkedIn. Yeah. So That's awesome. for anyone else who is interested in getting onto the platform, kind of what recommendations do you have for them? And and why did you ultimately choose LinkedIn over the Instagrams, TikToks, mm. and Twitters of the world? That's a good question. Yeah. I'll answer I'll answer that one first. The reason I chose LinkedIn is because I'm not a social, it's kind of funny. Um, I'm not like a social media fan. I'm not a huge fan of it. I haven't been on Facebook in like five years. I post on Instagram like twice a year. Like I basically, you know, I never, I never post on Instagram. Twitter just seems like it's so hard to, like, I, I just don't have enough thoughts in the day to post regularly on Twitter for the people that do that. So what I appreciate about LinkedIn is that it's more of a professional setting. Right. So people aren't jumping on to see like what I'm having for lunch or what's happening in my life necessarily. They're looking for information to um, become better in their profession. Right. They want to become better in their business or better in their profession. They want to improve or upskill in some way. Like that's generally I think that's the benefit of posting on LinkedIn, because that's why people are there. They're there to network. Right. They're there to communicate with other professionals in some way um, and to continue improving. So that's I think. I think that's a huge benefit of LinkedIn, like over others. It's just not as, I don't know, like, I don't, it's just not as like muddy would probably be the way to say it, right? It's, it's a little bit cleaner, um, which I really appreciated. So that's what made it easier for me. And that's why I ultimately landed on LinkedIn. It's kind of like an untapped resource for anyone, right? It's a great starting point for that reason, because the barrier of entry is super low. So that's what's yeah. good about it. Yeah. So it's a low barrier of entry. Like, I mean, I, you know, I started with less than a thousand followers a little over a year ago. And I'm up to 15,000. So it's not, you know, it's plenty possible to to grow in a short period of time on the platform. If you're looking to do it, I think there's three things you can do. The first one is to find creators that you appreciate and that happen to capture your attention on a regular basis. The second thing would then be to obviously like to kind of study them, to get a sense for how they're formatting things, why people are attracted to them, why you're attracted to them and, and to the content that they're posting. Like, why is it helpful how is it helpful? And usually do that, like I would do that through like a copywriting framework. I, you know, Google copywriting. Uh, there's a ton of newsletters around it. There's a ton of people that tweet about it. There's a ton of people on LinkedIn that post about it. Just having even a base level understanding of copywriting can make a huge impact, I think, on on the reach that you get on your posts. And then the third thing is just to start posting. And that's the thing that most people don't do right? You hesitate because you're afraid of how people are going to respond. It's okay. I have, I have posts that get like five likes. <laughs> it's, you know, I have 15,000 followers and still have posts that get like absolutely nothing, right? So it happens. And, and the, but the difference is that I've now posted like 500 times, right? So I know that if one doesn't work, then there's another one that might be more beneficial or more helpful for people. But you have to start to get there and you have to be able to kind of like look back and understand what's working and what's not working and what people care about and what they don't. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. 
Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in the community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is Practice of Arc. That's Practice of A-R-C-H. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to drop us a DM and say hello. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by the Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.